Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Everybody knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world. Yet somehow we find it hard to believe in ones that crash down on our heads from a blue sky. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people by surprise. That was a quote from Albert Camus, The Plague. 35 years earlier, Thomas Mann had written that other 20th century masterpiece about pestilence, Death in Venice. Who can forget the image of tourists fleeing the city as the deserted streets are painted with disinfectant. Well, these great books certainly resonate right now. Chris Smith of the Naked Scientist podcast has a day job, as you probably know. He's a leading virologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and here he offers an example of why the coronavirus pandemic is so very serious. Children are catching it, they're getting very trivial symptoms and we're not regarding this as, oh, they've got this coronavirus, they're not being tested, so they're escaping from scrutiny and it's giving us the false impression that they're either not being infected or they're immune. As far as we know, no one is immune to this virus yet because it's new, so no one's seen it before, no one has immunity and that's why it has the potential to spread across the entire world population. Thanks for that, Chris. My guests this week are Reverend Neil Thorogood, Principal of Westminster College, Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute, and Dr. Fiona Cornish, who's a Cambridge GP. We're going to discuss the broad issues that arise from dealing with this pandemic. And to maintain our social distancing, you would have noticed that we've left the Wolf Institute studio to record this edition remotely. Apologies in advance for the sound quality, but like everyone else in this crisis, we're learning as we go along but we thought it was important to bring you this discussion. The Hebrew Bible includes the 10 plagues in Egypt, blood, frogs, insects, and so on. And the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel include pestilence among the divine punishments for faithlessness. In the New Testament, Jesus talks of the end times, 
when nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these, he said, are the beginning of sorrows. So, Neil, why was pestilence viewed as a divine punishment? And is this still true today? And I'd add one more to that, Neil. As a minister of religion and as a man who teaches future ministers of religion, what do you advise them? I think we're witnessing and feeling for ourselves what it's like to be confronted by something invisible that can do not only you great harm, but can seem to unpick almost every aspect of society and and the world as we know it. And we're feeling all sorts of things, and we have the benefit of all sorts of explanations about what this is, where it's come from, why it's doing to us what it's doing. I think if we read backwards to a point where none of that was available, it's maybe not so surprising that people wanted to try and find other answers. And one of the answers that they found was, well, this must be sent by God. Um, and and therefore, perhaps this is a punishment for um, faithlessness or whatever. And I mean, we've seen that more recently in our own time. I, I vividly remember uh, the horror of reading stuff written, not least sadly, by um, folk in churches saying, that the AIDS epidemic and pandemic was itself uh, God's judgment against homosexuals. Or even more recently, people saying, well, the flooding that we're having uh, is God's judgment. Um, so there is, there is always, I think, something within um, faith, because it's there in Scripture, uh, it's undeniably present, this idea that, that awful things are sent by God because we've done bad things. But I'd want to set other things alongside that. I mean, the danger is if you just pick out the plagues and all of those bits of the Bible, you can easily construct a God who is vindictive and brutal and cruel and wants to destroy us. But that's not the only story. So what I would be saying to congregations and helping people who are going to be preaching and leading is let's reflect on the whole of the story. And I think the other thing I would reflect on is the significance of what it is for us to then care for our neighbors, that actually where God is to be found is not least in the amazing acts of kindness and love that we see going on right now. So, Miriam, the fragility of human existence, certainly in terms of um, the Bible and in terms of the religious story. Um, what about in terms of history and particularly in your period, in the sort of pre-modern period? What, what, what can we learn from that time? Well, I think the lesson of comfort to take away is that these are very difficult times, but they are over after a certain period of time. So there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, during the Great Plague, and this is sort of connecting to, to the kindness that Neil mentions, 50% in many parts of the world, 50% of the population died. I think these, these, these sort of trying times show the great capacity that we as humans have. And I think this is uh, as much sort of to do with uh, individual crises as also with collective crises. They are usually a, a great opportunity to grow and to improve. Uh, famously, after the Great Plague uh, in the 14th century, society improved a lot. Suddenly there were workers' rights. Suddenly there were women's rights that hadn't previously existed. 
because people understood that you know the, the life that had been given to them was was precious and that they they as individuals they were um they they were capable of of surviving this 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 great affliction Miriam one of the consequences of the coronavirus has been a number of attacks against Chinese young people or people from the Far East who are, who are scapegoats, essentially. Now, this isn't the first time that there have been scapegoats. Throughout history, there have been scapegoats. And of course, in the medieval period with the Great Plague, there was one particular scapegoat. I wonder if it's worth touching on that. Yes. So in the 14th century, as a consequence of, of the Great Plague striking across Europe, starting in Italy and then sort of spreading out, um, Jewish communities all over Europe were attacked. Uh, many, many hundreds of lives were lost in many, many cities. Uh, in Germany, I'm quite familiar with the German background, for example, in Erfurt, where a merchant um, uh, buried a big treasure because the, I think a thousand lives were lost on that day uh, in Cologne in other places. People tend to look for a scape scapegoat when they are being struck by a disaster. It's, it's, I think it's a very natural tendency um, we, see, we saw this now with uh, Trump using the word Chinese flu in, 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 a, in a sort of an attempt to to pin it on, a, on an exotic power, especially China, because of course there's this great trade war. So often these accusations are being in instrumentalized by leaders, um, and of course it was uh, similar with the Jewish populations. It was an instrumentalization against this minority uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, but I think this is something that we we see even on a smaller scale. We see very often people being accused of taking a disease into a certain village or into a certain community, into a certain church. This sort of tendency to identify individuals, uh, typhoid Mary-like, from where the disease was spread. And I think this is, of course, extremely unfair and uh, uh, something that, that should be uh, sort of stopped at all cost. So, Fiona, we've touched on the plague of the Bible and the pestilence and the plague in the Middle Ages. And now we're dealing with our own pestilence today. One of your jobs as a GP is to reassure people. How do you reassure patients today? Well, it's quite difficult to reassure patients about this coronavirus because we don't always know all the answers. And of course, one doesn't want to spread fear. You want to spread calm and do it in a measure, give measures and accurate but not um, ridiculous advice. So as far as we can, we are reassuring people that if they follow the guidelines, then they will be putting themselves in the best position they can. There's a problem about the testing because we don't have enough testing in this country at the moment. Um, and it would be very helpful if people knew whether they'd had it or whether they'd got it. And we hope that tests are being produced in bigger numbers now, both testing to see if you have it, and then we hope there will be a test to see if you have had it. Because one of the issues is the people who are self-isolating who are then therefore not at work, and that puts pressure on other medical staff, and the whole approach is to maintain the workforce to have a manageable workload. So there's, a, there's reassurance to patients, but there's also reassurance to your fellow medics. Yes, uh, there's quite a lot of reassurances needed. To, for the workforce. You may have heard on the headline about junior doctors regarded as, as lambs to the slaughter, which is not a nice thought if that's your son or daughter as a junior doctor. 
and also the concern about protective equipment. That's come to light recently. Yes, the protective equipment, and we realise that there's a lot of difference between countries. At the moment, we haven't got, there's a concern we haven't got enough, but the government has responded very quickly. They're trying to get factories to make more of it as quickly as they can. It's really vital if we expect hospital doctors to look after COVID patients for the two-way exchange of the disease from the doctors to the patients and vice versa is really essential. One of the implications, Neil, of the coronavirus in terms of religion is the shift in religious worship and religious practice happening virtually. Um, and even Pope Francis talking about if you can't get to church, you can pray straight to God. You know, these big shifts theologically, but also in people's lives. What, 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 how do you see this having a, an ongoing impact or, or tell us more? It is remarkable. Uh, I mean, one of the things that um, has quite a lot of currency in the church at the moment, has had for a good few years, is the whole idea of fresh expressions of church, the whole idea of church doing things differently. And what's fascinating is that in a way what's going on is that across Western Europe, certainly across Britain, uh, the church has suddenly become a fresh expression. It's it's having to find entirely new ways of doing things. Um, people are discovering that you can do all sorts of things virtually. Um, so in one sense, I think what's happening is that the 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 connectedness of the church is growing enormously. I suspect, I mean, I was hearing something this morning about thousands of people connecting to an online act of worship. And that church on a normal Sunday was lucky to have 100 people. So scale is happening all over the place. Of course, what's then not happening is another hugely significant dimension, which is social interaction. Um, we're social distancing, but how do how do we do that and still interact? And and there are real limits, I think, to what you can do via a screen. Um, it it is there is something very fundamental in the in in the worship tradition of being able to be in space together. And I suspect that, like all sorts of things to do with our current situation, there are going to be gains and there are going to be losses, and it's going to take. It's going to take local churches a while to kind of work out what of this do we hold on to and what of this do we have to say that was an emergency, but actually that's not the way we want to do things. And Miriam, that says this has implications for um, teaching as well and, and, and the exams in particular that all the universities, not just Cambridge, have had to throw up their existing traditions and, and change it dramatically. How, how is it impacting on, on teaching and, and can everything be taught, taught by e-learning and distance and remote teaching? Well, as a manuscript expert, I can tell you that, you know, you cannot work with just images of manuscripts. You need to actually have them in your hand in order to connect to them. There's something mystical about it. And it's the same with, um, with students. It's, you know, you can connect. I mean, even in this podcast, we've done podcasts before. It's very, very, it's, it's very different when we sit in the studio together. Um, if you're not in the same room, you just, you're missing these sort of inexplicable uh, synergies. Um, but of course, I mean, necessity is the mother of all invention. We'll have to cope. We'll find ways uh, to, to exam and to, to teach. I mean, a lot of the universities have switched to online teaching. And um, I mean, you know, if we have to, we will. Fiona. 
just before we started the podcast, you were talking to me about how few, I think, one patient you've seen today because everyone was phoning in. And of course, there's a great deal of of uh, care you can give and advice you can give as a GP just through someone sending you an image of a rash or, or a sore point or something. Yes, I think it's interesting. We're going to learn how to use telemedicine much more effectively. So I've always been rather in favour of saying we must see each other face to face. But actually the telemedicine can provide a good mechanism for almost all consultations. You can't examine a knee if you want to examine a swollen bobby knee or you've got a rash or it's a gynecological or internal thing, then obviously that's impossible. But I think we're realising that it's more helpful than we previously thought. And it may stick. Some of these video and telephone consultation systems may stick. And it may be just complementary rather than yes. replacement. Yes. I mean, that's probably where we're moving towards. I think we'd be moving towards telephone triage and then bring the patients in face to face if needed. And, and perhaps in, in terms of interfaith dialogue and thinking about dialogue being uh, a, an encounter, uh, a meeting, Neil, maybe we're going to be moving towards sort of more virtual interfaith dialogue. I think you do have to have you, you do have to have the encounter. But I think we are beginning to learn that maybe there are real encounters happening online and virtually where we had before just thought of it as a tool, we're now discovering that there may be something really more significant to it. So, again, I think it's something that we will learn and discover more of in the light of these events. I think there's also a real chance there. In one of our research projects uh, on, um, on religious sisterhood, we see that in sort of unusual circumstances, we see very unusual leadership arise. For example, women for the first time taking over religious leadership in worship in, within an interface setting. In the same way, I think, you know, interface dialogue and all sorts of um, religious dialogue has often been accused as being a game for, for elderly men. And I think perhaps with, you know, uh, with this situation, we'll see actually a younger generation emerge of faith leaders because the technology, they're much more familiar with the technology. They will actually be able to perhaps, you know, communicate better through through this online medium than, you know, the old established leaders. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity um, for completely new leaders to emerge. Well, let's take a pause and wash our hands. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Neil Thorogood, Esther Marin Wagner and Fiona Cornish. Perhaps one of the problems we face is the stereotype of virulent disease as exotic, as distant in time or place. Dr. Kevin Wynn worked on the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, as he explained in the Naked Scientist podcast. The particular issue is that one of the traditional practices is to wash the bodies of people who have died at funerals. And in fact, dead bodies are secreting the highest amount of virus. So, that, so in fact, it's the most infective situation. But it's very difficult to get people to try and change that behaviour and very upsetting as well for people not to be able to wash their loved ones. Will the arrival of the coronavirus in our communities mark the time when we no longer think of epidemics like Ebola in Africa and cholera in Haiti as distant and exotic? I know you spent some time in Taiwan. What lessons are there to learn from other parts of the world as we begin to face these epidemics and when they seem to have uh, come home? I think one of the things we're experiencing, we're witnessing it and we're feeling it in ourselves, 
is that now we are made vulnerable. Um, we have we have lived into um, a Western world that I think is all about limiting our vulnerability. It's about um, controlling our environments, controlling our circumstances, protecting ourselves in all sorts of ways. But actually, the majority of the world's population have lived without that reality. They've lived with life being far more fragile, far more uncertain. And I think this crisis is bringing home to us in our own houses, in our streets, with our neighbors, in our supermarkets. It's bringing home to us the reality of scarcity and uncertainty and fear. I mean, still, um, not on the scale that that people who are living on less than one dollar a day would experience. But but nevertheless, I think it has crossed over now. And I think, again, one of the things that I wonder is, will we will we say this was an emergency, a crisis? As soon as it ends, we'll try and move away from it as quickly as we can and try and get back to something that feels much more normal? Or will we have the wisdom, perhaps, to say, what is this teaching us? about actually what it's like to live in a world that is less certain, more fragile, and how do we share in living in that world well together? This is a very important point that Neil made, because we see this great leveling of, of the different world, of the global south and us, because for the first time, I think our society is experiencing this, this great helplessness that we usually don't have, which is very familiar with the uh, with, for people uh, living in other countries. And we're also seeing this leveling in the sense that Now we can't travel in the same way that they can't travel. Uh, we have food scarcity, a perceived food scarcity, perhaps, but you know, potentially some products won't be available. And of course, we still have a lot more food than people in other countries. So I think this is something that we really need to take away from this idea that we live in great privilege. And you know, this situation, this crisis, really points us to this privilege. And I'm. I know that um, Ed usually tells the, the Jewish jokes, um, but I'm going to tell one now as well. Um, there is this uh, a story about uh, a man going to the rabbi and saying, you know, I live in this crowded house with my parents and my children and all these other relatives. It's absolutely dreadful. So the rabbi says, well, take a goat and, and live with the goat and all the others in the house. And then the man goes back to the rabbi and says, it's really awful now. The, the goat kicks everyone and defecates everyone. It's complete chaos. And then the rabbi says, well, take the goat out now. And then the man comes back and says, it's brilliant. It's so peaceful now. It's wonderful. So again, the situation that we're in, thrusting us into the reality of where we live in, that we really have wonderful, beautiful lives. And uh, I think people will appreciate this more after the after disease has gone. Fiona, what will be learned, do you think, amongst from, uh, your patients, for example, as a result of the coronavirus? I think they'll learn to manage their trivial illnesses and conditions themselves, which we've been trying to encourage. Uh, so that will be a good thing. I think that uh, I hope that some red tape bureaucracy will go by the board for good. So, for example, allowing people to do things even if they haven't got the up-to-date certificate that says they've been on the training course. So, in other words, I think some common sense might come in because I think there's a lot of wasted uh, work time because of too much bureaucracy. So that will be good. I think the cooperation is marvellous. So I think that the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer have been leading really well. They've, they're honest. 
they've shown that if they don't know in this very fast evolving situation, then they've been able to say that. They've tried to get everyone on board. And uh, another thing is that everyone should take their responsibility. So instead of saying, oh, well, it doesn't really apply to me, I can go and have a party or I can go and meet my friends, uh, we'll have a pop-up park. They need to know that everyone's in it together. I also think it bodes well for the future of the NHS if they can cooperate in a cross-party way instead of just the next election. Experts, Neil, leadership. I mean, that's something that you, not only as a minister of religion, but someone who teaches future ministers of religion, have to um, pass on. What, what skills do religious leaders need in this moment of crisis? And, and before you answer that, a similar question to Miriam as a, a teacher of future academic leaders, as well as leaders of policy and those who are doing practical work. You know, what lessons are there, are there for them um, out of this pandemic? Neil? A few things strike me immediately. I think um, one of the things that we're looking for and that we're seeing is that good leadership is about starting with yourself. It's about a willingness to be reflexive, about a willingness to own your own position, your own feelings, your own fears, because I think out of that grows empathy. And I think good leadership at the moment is very much about being able to empathize with how other people are feeling. I think then I'm struck that there are all sorts of ways in which people are making big decisions in the life of churches. I mean, it's a huge thing, uh, unprecedented thing pretty much to have closed down Christian worship. Um, that's an amazing thing to have done. Uh, and to close down worship across the, 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 the different faith traditions. And in the space of just a few weeks, People have had to cope with that reality and then work out what are we going to do? What are we going to put in place? Um, we've already touched on things like pastoral care and visiting and being with people. And all of that has had to change really fast. So what I'm struck by is that leadership is also about being willing to recognize the scale of the challenge and then listen to advice, not rush in. Take time, but don't take too long. Um, often I think the church is guilty of either rushing into things and doing something that just doesn't work very well or being so, so cautious that we don't do anything at all, really. And I think a lot of churches are getting the balance right. They're, they're paying attention to the advice. They're researching quickly and carefully. And then they are being bold and they're taking decisive action to try and do new things. And I think those are some of the skills that I think leadership is bringing out in people. Um, Miriam? What really, as an academic, trying to look at it from a very um, academic perspective, what really fascinates me is how leaders all over Europe have had to completely change their approach to how they address the public. I mean, when the pandemic started in China three months ago, people said many of these measures would be impossible in individualist Europe. Um, you could just not tell people not to go from A to B. And of course, our leaders had to step up and they had to completely ignore sort of popular opinion on things and they had to make decisive decisions. And none of us could have imagined three months ago that we would go through these restrictions as we have them. Restriction of movement in some part of Europe, you can't even leave your house. I mean, these sort of things would have been unimaginable. And I think what 
future leaders can really take away from this is that even unpopular measures, when they are necessary, can be implemented. And this is extremely important in uh, uh, anything to do with the coming climate change crisis. I mean, we are in the crisis already, but of course the challenges will be really exorbitant in, over the coming decades. And what we've seen now, and I think this is absolutely beautiful, we've seen that the world can adapt and can step up to the challenge. And they can, if they want to, they can actually implement all these measures that will help us uh, save the climate. Well, Fiona, as our GP, we're going to give you the last word. What advice do you have? I'm hopeful that there will be some benefits, that people will value their social interactions, value their activities, being able to go to the opera and theatre, to play tennis, to meet their family and friends on a regular basis. And that if they can manage with the deprivations, then there will be some benefits. I'm particularly sad not to be going to Oberamaga Passion Play, which has been cancelled this year. And Perhaps you could tell uh, our listeners what the Oberamaga Passion Play is about. It's the oldest passion play. It's the oldest passion play, and it's performed in a village in southern Germany. And the reason they set it up was in gratitude for their village escaping from the plague. And they do it every 10 years, and they've been preparing many years for the 2021. Anyway, sadly, they've had to cancel it, but undeterred, they have rebooked it for two years' time. So I won't have to wait 10 years. So it's not a cancellation. It's not a cancellation. It's a postponement. And I think that's what we have to get used to, that life will go on again. Well, maybe something positive can come out of all of this. I'd like to end with another quote from Albert Camus. There's no question of heroism in all of this. It's a matter of common decency. That's an idea which may make people smile. But the only means of fighting a plague is common decency. Thanks to my guests, Neil Thorogood, Esther in Wagner and Fiona Cornish. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientists.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time when we would have mastered or nearly mastered the remote recording technique. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.